Smith Barney was this financial powerhouse for most of its life as a company. Until, of course, it wasn't. Uh, it was one of the many companies that were kind of a victim of the 2008 uh, financial recession. So they kind of did this like insolvency. We earned it. <laughs> it's a joke about insolvency as a company. Okay. <laughs> but I, I love to look at these old commercials. I know that we've done that a number of times in here when I, when I teach. I think they're kind of a snapshot of how the cultural views that we have around things are formed. I think award shows are another one of those things. Uh, apparently last week was the Golden Globes. And what I heard the other night on the news was that, uh, unfortunately, Lady Gaga only won one Golden Globe. But the real winner that night was her makeup. I was like, oh, I didn't even know that I didn't know anything about this. And they said her makeup artist in the news report, this makeup artist makes somewhere between high six figures and low seven figures to be her makeup artist. I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm in the wrong line of work. I bet I'm good at that. <laughs> And then what struck me is the commenter said, but you know what, though? Like, she, they, she earns it. I mean, that is hard behind-the-scenes work. I was like, I, really? I, I'm just not sure that it is. It's makeup. You know, and if you're a makeup artist, don't send me emails. I'm sure that what you do is really important. Um, <laughs> the point is, it felt really weird and uncomfortable to talk about how much somebody made. Because that's something in our culture isn't polite. You don't talk about income in our culture unless you're here. So let's do it. <laughs> We've been in this series, Money Wise, looking at what the Bible has to say and how the Bible has shaped culture and how the Bible can shape culture and views on issues like money and income and how we save and invest and spend and give. Throughout it, we've been looking at the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs is an Old Testament book that is just chock full of all this really practical, down-to-earth, daily wisdom. Chris last week called it Level One Wisdom. It's stuff that's just true. Like You don't have to buy any of the God stuff, any of the Jesus stuff, heaven, hell, Holy Spirit, any of that. It's just true, and you can apply it to your life and learn and be better for having done it, right? It's stuff that Smith Barney, if they still existed, would probably agree with, for the most part, in their principles. But then Chris said that there's a whole nother level of wisdom, level two wisdom, and it's different than level one. It doesn't necessarily make sense in this world's systems. It doesn't necessarily fit in this world's systems. It doesn't necessarily feel comfortable. It doesn't even necessarily feel wise to us. I'm not sure if Smith Barney, if they still existed, would agree with everything that it has to say. And frankly, it does mean that there are some truths that we embrace in order to get to the level two wisdom. That we embrace, that acknowledge that there are systems that are bigger than this world. And must be embraced if we're to experience it. And today we're going to look at one of those stories of wisdom from, from Luke. A story that Jesus tells in Luke. The Gospel of Luke has a lot to say about money. In fact, m- more than any other Gospel in the Bible. Something like 40 times Jesus, is te- Jesus teaches about money in the Gospel of Luke. 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus teaches in the Gospel are about money or possessions. One in ten verses in the Gospels as a whole address the issue of money and possessions. It was a big deal to Jesus. So we're going to look at one of those stories today. It's from Luke 12. Jesus has been going around teaching and preaching and healing and doing miracles. Because, and because he's doing these things, he's become increasingly famous. There's huge crowds that he's gathering. Chapter 12 opens this way. Meanwhile, the crowds grew until thousands were milling about and stepping on each other. The crowd was so big, they were stepping on each other, it says. This is Jesus at the height of his popularity. He hasn't said any of the crazy stuff that scares people yet. So he has a huge crowd around him. He begins to teach. And like so many of his stories, the teaching that Jesus has is a hard word. 
But as Chris pointed out in week one, often, almost always, when Jesus has a hard word that he needs to say, he couches it in his love and his grace. He lets his listener know that it is his love, his desire for them to have better lives, his desire for them to know his will that, that, that pushes him to say the things, that drives him to say what he does. For instance, verse 6, right after saying some really hard stuff, Jesus says, what is the price of five sparrows? Two copper coins? Yet God does not forget a single one of them. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. That's not that impressive, actually, with me. I... So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. These sparrows that he's referencing were like the cheapest thing in the market of the day. I mean, they were basically worthless. And yet Jesus is saying, God knows every single one of them. And he cares so much more. If he cares for them, how much more does he care for you, his children? One of the fundamental beliefs that we have as Christians, as followers of Christ, is that every command of God is for his glory but also for our good. So whenever we see teaching of Jesus, even when it looks arbitrary and weird and doesn't make a lot of sense, and we have to wonder, like, what, what is going on with that? We can back to this question and say, how, in what ways does this elevate God's glory? And in what ways does God plan to use this for my good in my life and in the life of those around me? Let's keep reading, starting in verse 13. Then someone called from the crowd, teacher, Please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Luke doesn't give us any other biographical information on this. It just says someone yelled from the crowd. But we do know that in the ancient world, oftentimes people would come to rabbis. Jewish people would come to rabbis and ask them to kind of mediate or arbitrate in their family disputes. And so this guy's approaching Jesus as a rabbi and saying, Jesus, will you mediate? Will you arbitrate in this family dispute? Except he doesn't, does he? He doesn't ask, will you help us figure this out? He says, Tell my brother to give me my money. He's not looking just for mediation. Again, we don't know the circumstances of this dispute. We don't know really uh, anything about it, except that we do know that typically in the ancient world, families would actually kind of pool their resources together, business resources together, so that they could have more of them uh, and use them wisely. And so in this case, even if there was distinct ownership, they were supposed to be pooled together. And this guy's coming and saying, I want out. I want this guy to give me my share of the inheritance. It's a lot like the story that Jesus is going to tell a couple of chapters later about a young man who goes to his father and says, give me my inheritance now. I want out. And then takes that inheritance and squanders it. We don't know. It doesn't say, but maybe this guy is like that guy. Or maybe I have it all wrong. I mean, maybe this guy has actually been wronged by his family. Maybe his family is denying him the resources that they are due to him that are rightfully his, and he's appealing to Jesus for justice. We don't know. But either way, Jesus' response to the man is the same. Jesus Jesus replied, friend, who made me judge over you to decide such things as that? Basically, Jesus is saying, I don't want any part of that fight. But since you brought it up, (laughs) then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Jesus, throughout Luke, demonstrates, and throughout the gospel, demonstrates that he knows the hearts and minds and thoughts of these people that come to him. And here, he calls the guy out. He says, this is greed. And greed will destroy you. Guard against greed. Beware against greed. And the Greek word that he actually uses here is actually philosophy. 
And, and it's so much stronger than beware. It's more like a picture of we are under constant attack from covetousness and greed. So be on guard. Post a sentinel. Post a guard in your life that can guard against, that can fight against greed and covetousness. Because it will destroy you. Every kind of greed. This theme of the dangers of greed is pervasive throughout all of the book of Luke and all of Jesus' teaching. And in each case, the danger is that greed. This chasing after more and more stuff in our life becomes an obstacle to people experiencing all that God has for them. Becomes an obstacle to entering the kingdom of God. For Jesus, greed and the pursuit of of possessions are among the greatest potential obstacles to spiritual growth. And then Jesus reiterates that here with some wisdom that sounds like it comes right from Proverbs. He says, life is not measured by how much you own. Note that I said potential obstacles. Money and possession don't need to be obstacles in our lives. And yet scripture talks about them and warns about them so much. And Jesus here is saying, beware. But I think we would be wise to beware, to make note, to set the guards that Jesus is telling us to set. We started Financial Peace University this week here at ECC. My wife and I are doing it. Chris and his wife are doing it, and it's been really great. I'm going to probably be really rich at the end of it. I'm pretty sure. Uh, (laughs) But Dave Ramsey has said so many great things, even in week one. And one of the things that he said was something like, "Money won't. more money won't make you happy or sad or depressed or content. More money will make you more of what you already are. I thought it was profound. It will make you more of what you already are than you already are. And so if you have greed and discontentment, it'll make you more greedy. Greed won't be satisfied, won't be satiated with more. No matter how much you throw at it, it will always want more. The ancient historian Plutarch said, greed never rests from the acquiring of more. And Jesus warns against it, at least in part, because I believe greed kills love. Push back on that. But I think greed kills love. Greed will not rest and does not care who it hurts in order to get more. What families are torn apart, what marriages are ruined, what brothers end up hating each other because they want to divide their father's estate. That's what greed does, says Jesus. Back to the story. To illustrate this point. Jesus, and again, his point was about greed. Jesus tells a story, a story that we've come to know as the parable of the rich fool. This language of fool and wise is something we've been talking about the last several weeks because it's language that appears all throughout the book of Proverbs. All of these Proverbs are, a wise man does this, but a fool does this. A wise man has this, but a fool has this. And so Jesus is using that same sort of contrast here as he describes a person in chapter 12 of Luke, and yet he uses it in a surprising way. As we read... Hear these words of Proverbs through the, or hear these words of Luke 2 through the lens of Proverbs. Can you hear through a lens? Am I mixing metaphors? <laughs> okay. Luke 12, starting in chapter 16. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. Let's stop there. We have an unnamed rich man 
who has a farm that's fertile, and he's worked that fertile land by planting crops and presumably caring for those crops. And his hard work and his fertile ground has yielded a great harvest, right? I mean, so far, looking at this, this looks exactly like a guy of wisdom would look like in the book of Proverbs, right? Next verse. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. So I'm not exactly sure why he needs to tear down his old barns. It seems like you just keep the old barns and then build more barns, right? For some reason, he says, I'll tear down my old barns and I'll build new barns and then I could store all of my wheat. The point is he had a storage problem. And rather than letting this bumper crop go to waste or get eaten by animals or rot out in the elements, he thinks carefully. He makes a plan. He does what I think looks to most people like a wise solution. This seems to fit the mold of wisdom from Proverbs. So why is this known as the parable of the rich fool? Let's keep reading. Next verse. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. This guy's literally quoting the book of Ecclesiastes. And who wrote Ecclesiastes? Solomon. The same guy who wrote the wisdom literature, the Proverbs, right? He's literally quoting Ecclesiastes. And it sounds awesome, right? I mean, this is the American dream. You work hard, you invest well, and then you retire young and early and you eat, drink, and be married for the rest of your days. I haven't finished FPU, but I bet you Dave Ramsey would love this guy. Maybe not. (laughs) He's killing it. Next verse. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you work for? What? I mean, that seems super harsh. I mean, you look at this guy, he's worked hard, he's invested well, he's, he's made the most of everything that he has, and he's stored it up for himself, he's saved, and then he dies tragically. At best, at, at best we should call him, like, unlucky guy. <laughs> but fool? Proverbs taught us that it's wise to work hard and save. Proverbs 21, for instance, says, Good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. There's no indication that this guy took any shortcuts. If anything, he made extra work for himself by tearing barns down that he didn't need to. Right? Or this one, a hard worker has plenty of food, but a person who chases fantasies has no sense. Or this one, the wise store up food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Or this one, good people leave an inheritance to their grandchildren, but the sinner's wealth passes to the godly. In every one of those, if you hold it up against this guy's story, it looks like he's doing it all right. He's living wisely according to that level one wisdom of Proverbs. And yet God calls him a fool. And why is Jesus using this story to illustrate what greed is? Let's go back to Luke. Let's look at that next verse. Yes, a person is a fool to store up wealth, earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. There it is. He's not a fool for having worked hard. He's not a fool because he had a good crop. He's not a fool because he was able to retire early and have a great life of eating and drinking and being merry. It says a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. The ESV translation, which we often use in this space, says it a little bit differently. I love how they say it. It says, so so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. A fool is someone who stores up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. 
This man's problem wasn't that he had stored up treasures on earth. It was that he had stored up treasures on earth, but not had a rich, been rich toward God. We'll come back to what rich toward God means. First, let's go back. I want to go back just briefly and look at that story again. Walk verse by verse one more time through it quickly. And to see where's the evidence in this story that he was not rich toward God, that he, that he was greedy or that somehow he was a fool in this story. So going back to verse 16, a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. Central to Jewish belief, and at least in theory to Christian belief today, is this idea that the earth is all God's and everything and everyone in it. The psalmist in Psalm 24 says those very words, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Central to Jewish belief, and at least in theory to Christian belief today, was the idea that God causes the rain to fall, the sun to shine, the crops to grow, that it is all evidence of God's grace and God's provision, and that it is all his. This was central to their beliefs, theoretically to ours as well. God had promised throughout the Old Testament that he would give them this promised land, a land that would flow with milk and honey, that would be bountiful and provide for them, and they would just have abundance of life if they trusted in him. It says in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, the crops of your ground, in the land he swore your ancestors to give you. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the works of your hand. You will lend to many nations, but borrow from none. So in the story that Jesus is telling, this young rich man is experiencing the very provision that God had promised he would give. The very bounty poured out from the storehouse of God that God said he would give. How does he respond? Next verse. He said to himself, what shall I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you've stored away enough for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Pronouns matter. And what are the pronouns you see him using in this? I'll read them for you. They are I, I, my, I, my, I'll, my, I'll, myself, my, and you. (laughs) Notice the only time he says you, he's actually talking to himself. (laughs) For those of you who are grammar geeks, I know that my is not actually a pronoun. It's a possessive adjective, so don't send me emails. <laughs> the point is, it's all about him. It's his crops that he grew and he harvested and his barn and his problem and his plan and his solution. What's missing? Any sense that God had any role in it. Any sense of blessing or grace or fulfillment of God's promise. Even an awareness of it. What's missing is any reflection on sharing or giving any sense that any of this bounty that the earth has given him, that God has given him should be enjoyed by anyone except his possessive adjective self. It's mine. I made the money, the good old fashioned way I earned it. It's easy to stand away from these sorts of scriptures and look at them and see, Oh yeah, he's a fool. But the reality is I read this story I look at my own life, I I use a whole lot of possessive adjectives. You know, like, I've worked hard. I went to school for a long time. I have a lot of experience. I've earned what I, and I'm super good looking. (laughs) 
I have earned everything that I get. Right? I mean, we don't ever say that out loud because it's inappropriate to talk that way. And yet, I think it's perhaps how we talk to ourselves when we say, hey, you, you're doing all right. But God called that man a fool. So if being rich toward God, if not being rich toward God makes you a fool, what does it mean to be rich toward God? Well, I think in order to look at that, we have to look at the words of Jesus. We need to go back to the story to the very next verse. How does Jesus define what being rich toward God means? Next verse. Then, turning to his disciples, Jesus said, That is what I tell you, not to worry about everyday life, whether you'll have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear. For life is more than food and your body more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them. And you are far more valuable to him than any birds. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying about bigger things? I think for those of us who have grown up in the church, we've heard this passage so many times. And I think for, for those of us like me who live in a culture, I'm obsessed with food and clothes. Well, not so much with clothes. In fact, my wife would say that she'd like it if I cared more how I dress. Some of you probably feel that way. But in a culture that is so obsessed with the Lady Gagas of this world and with fashion and beauty and what we wear and what shoes we have. I think it's easy for us to hear and read this verse and read shame into it. Like, if you worry about those things, then you're a sinner and you're bad. If you worry about where your next paycheck is going to come from, then you're a sinner and you're bad. You don't have enough faith. But what's Jesus' real concern here? What's Jesus saying not to do to these people? What's his real don't? It's worry, right? I mean, his desire is that his people, his followers, would be able to escape the worries that control so many of the minds of the people of this world. The only don't that Jesus is prescribing is don't worry. The much bigger invitation that Jesus is making, the big do that he's making to his disciples and for us is to look at the goodness, the provision, the promises of God that's evidenced all around us. If we could simply turn off those messages that we hear all the time of more, more, more. This is one of the ways I think we can be aware of greed One of the ways that we can put up a strong guard in our lives so that greed can't take a foothold in our lives. Again, this is a strong word from Jesus that I think sometimes we turn into shame. Like if you you worry you're a sinner, but I think the heart of Jesus is more like the heart of a parent who looks at their toddler and says, have I ever given you any evidence that I'm not going to care for you and love you and provide for you? Is there any reason you need to be worried about the next meal? Trust me. I think that's the heart that you see in Jesus in these words as he speaks to them. And he continues, look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he'll certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Solomon, the wisest king, the most resplendent and luxurious king that Israel had ever known. And Jesus says, the flowers are more beautiful, more cared for than he was. How much more does God care for you? And he continues, and don't be concerned about what to eat and what to think. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world, but your father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you need. What's Jesus' don't here? 
don't be concerned. Don't be worried. Don't be dominated like the rest of the world around you is dominated by these concerns. God will give you everything you need. Just like he promised. But maybe what's importantly, more importantly, what's the do that Jesus is asking? He's saying, seek the kingdom of God above all else, right? Does that mean seek the kingdom of God instead of being a farmer, instead of having a job, instead of having a career? No, I mean, seek those things, but seek first and above all the kingdom of God. And then Jesus gives them another don't and another do. So don't be afraid, little flock. For it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old to develop holes. Your treasure will be saved. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. I think that Jesus is teaching these disciples and us that one of the ways we can place a guard over our hearts and over our minds and over our finances is by trusting in God for every necessary thing. There's a place to write that in your notes. That's one of the ways that Jesus is teaching us by trusting that God will be who he says he will be. I think worry is not a sin, but worry might be a symptom. And don't hear judgment in that. If you go to the doctor and he says, you know, I see some things that concern me that we should address. There's not judgment in that. His health is your desire. And I think worry might be a symptom. So how do we demonstrate that we really trust God? Unfortunately, scripture has a lot to say about that too. It's almost like this book is a manual for life written by the creator of life. Weird. Yeah, almost. Second way. We become rich towards God by sacrificially giving to God. Chris mentioned last week that there's a number of these proverbs that we looked at that actually end up getting quoted by Jesus in the New Testament. And I think perhaps this story that we just read of this rich ruler, or I'm sorry, rich fool, might be one of those cases where Jesus is actually referencing an earlier proverb, Proverbs chapter 3. And as I read this chapter 3, I want you to listen to these through the lens of the rich fool story, because I believe both of these ways that we can become rich towards God are illustrated in chapter 3. It starts with a proverb that I heard quoted my whole life, here and now in the context of the book of Luke. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't depend on your business skills. Or your money management. Or your retirement portfolio. Or your fertile soil. Have those things and manage them well as unto the Lord. But put all your trust in God. All of it. Which means none of it in those things. Place none of your trust in any of those things. All your trust in God. Next verse. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh, a refreshment to your bones. Basically saying, don't be too impressed with yourself. You're not all that. The rich fool had all kinds of plans that he came up with that involved way too much tearing down of old barns. Don't be wise in your own eyes. But then he gives a promise. What was his promise in there? It'll be healing to your flesh and refreshment 
to your bones. The next verse then speaks of the second way that we can become rich towards God. Verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. The rich fool looked at this incredible bounty that was before him and he saw it all as his. He went to all kinds of great effort to make sure that he could keep it all. But God says, honor me with your wealth and not with what's left over with your first fruits. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then what's the promise? The promise that the rich fool should have remembered. It says, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. I think it's interesting. I think it's a picture of the heart of God that he uses that distinction. He says that your barns will be filled with plenty, but your wine vats will be bursting. Wine throughout scripture is it's meant to symbolize this idea of celebration and feast and festival and communion with one another and with God. And he's saying your barns, I'll take care of your needs and your wine vats will be bursting. It's a picture of the heart of God, an extravagant love of God who wants to be in rich, deep, joyous, bursting relationship with us. He wants to pour his richness out on us and not some sort of transactional health and wealth. Like if I do this and this, then God is contractually bound to Jesus talks way too much about the cost of discipleship for any of that sort of nonsense. It's why I love the New Living Translation that I quoted earlier that says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Scripture tells us that God wants to have a rich relationship with us, a rich relationship of trust and provision and joy and honoring. But Scripture also warns us time and time again that we as humans have always had a tendency to allow our money and our possessions and our own self-sufficiency to become an obstacle to that rich relationship of trust and provision and joy and honor. As one commentary put it, we can't obscure the fact that earthly riches often keep us from going after heavenly riches as we should. It's harder to live like we're dependent on and trusting in God when our barns are full. The same commentary perhaps overstated it, but I think it's still worth quoting. So I will. They said, most of us are afraid of poverty. We should be afraid of wealth. Maybe it's an overstatement, but not by much. Jesus says, beware. How do we ensure that our stuff, our money, and our relative wealth doesn't end up being a barrier for us to experience the kind of rich, deep, bountiful relationship that God wants for us and with us? Well, I think it's right there in verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Honor God with your money. This thing, this currency that has so much power in our culture and in our lives that often feels like a source of security and hope and assurance and safety when things are going well and feels like dread and worry and fear and anxiety when things are going poorly. Take that thing that has so much power in your life and in your culture and give it to God as a way of honoring God. Redeem it back to God and do it first. Give God your first fruits, your best fruits. Not with what's left over at the end of the month, or the year, not after the bills are paid and the mortgage is secure and your retirement is fully funded, do it first. Not after the government gets their share and the bill collector gets paid, 
first. Not after the tickets for the vacation are booked and the car is paid off first. Honor the Lord with your wealth and do it first. I said at the beginning, we believe that every command of God is given for his glory, but also for our good. That his plans, his will, his heart is good and he wants good for us. So I think we look at this command and it is a command that we give. We look at this command and we say, in what ways does God want to use this for my good? John Piper once said, the movement of our money expresses the movement of your heart. The movement of your money expresses the movement of your heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So the question that we're asking as a community of people who want to be more like Jesus, who want to live the kind of life that God intended for us, is saying, how do we move our hearts more toward God? And here Jesus is saying, a big part of it is where our treasure is. We want to live like God intended for us. We want to love like God intended for us. We want to serve and reach out like God has intended for us. We want to care for people in this world and address the problems of this world like God intended. And we want to give like God intended, like, like intended for his disciples to give. We have a number of continuums that we talk about here. Uh, the ways in which we can kind of look at ourselves and say, in what ways are we growing and becoming more like Jesus? Becoming more and more disciples of Jesus. Living as he intended. And when it comes to giving, we have a continuum. We know they're not perfect. And that sometimes we step forward and we step backward. And it's not, you know, it's not linear. It's more like cyclical. But there's still a helpful guide. This is the one that we use for giving. It says on the left side, keep all. Share some. God first. And then even joyful stewardship. As you look at the story uh, of Jesus, it's really clear that the rich fool was clearly on the far left side of that. Keep all. I'm going to build extra barns so that I can keep everything that I have. And Jesus calls him a fool. That's where he was at. Where are you? If I'm going to be too honest, and I always am, I think as I look at my life, I'm, I'm, I'm past the keep all. I'm somewhere in the share some and, and getting to God first. And yet, as we talked about it as a family, oftentimes in, in our patterns of giving, it's, you know, at the end of the month or at the end of the year, or it's money that's left over if we've made it. It's after I've taken care of the important things. Wait, is there anything more important? And so we as a family have decided to move toward automatic withdrawal. They'll come out at the beginning of each month. I mean, I do automatic withdrawal for my cell phone bill to save like 10%. And I'm not going to do that for God. And honestly, it's stretching us. I mean, it's a little bit uncomfortable. It's a, it feels a little bit scary. It's moving us along the spectrum though. I'm saying, how do we tangibly show ourselves that we want to place God first. It's our way of saying to God, God, you're more important than Netflix. You're more important than a car payment, than our mortgage, than our insurance. You get first dibs. And if there isn't enough money at the end of the month, then some, somebody else is going to get shorted. And I share that not to be judged or congratulated. I share it to hopefully illustrate that we're all this together. All of us have ways in which we can grow and how we can experience this and move our hearts more and more towards God. But I think also to illustrate that even God first giving isn't enough. 
I mean, I think it's possible to look at that thing and say, like, God first giving. I'm giving first to God. But you know what? It's possible to give first to God and still do it in a way that's spiteful, still do it in a way that's trying to, like, leverage God. And if I do this, then he's going to do this. I think it's possible to do that and still resent it. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the child who says to the parent, like, clean my room. Can I go now? Well, no parent wants that, but they'll take it, right? (laughs) If it helps their child to move along the spectrum of actually taking ownership, of actually learning to care and steward their room and their possessions. That's why I think this is one of the ways that we can, in our active activities, active activities, we can do that to position ourselves so that God can do what only God can do in us, which is to take us from obedient givers to joyful stewards. It's something we can do to position ourselves for God to do what only he can do. Our hope is that if we become more like Christ, we begin to grow in our hearts and our minds and even our finances become transformed by the Holy Spirit in us. But growth is hard. It's why we call it discipline. What would it look like for you to move from where you're at on this spectrum, wherever that is, on this continuum, to move one step closer to the heart of God? What can you do and what will it take that only God can do in you. But I'll tell you that the scripture, the picture that scripture paints and the picture that I've seen lived out in the lives of countless disciples of Jesus who are way more mature than me, the stories that I heard in the lobby after the first service are of people that have been able to do this to the point and experience this to the point where they know what it is to live free of the worry and the anxiety of finances. They know what it's like to live in a way where they are not owned by the things that own them. They've learned to live in a way where they can experience the blessing, the rich blessing of God, and yet give joyfully and radically to this church and to causes that matter in this world and to help the poor and the homeless and the helpless and the marginalized in our society. They've been able to experience what it is to be a joyful steward, to participate and give freely as God gives freely to us. And so this year, our family is making one step closer to that reality. Trusting that God is going to do what God says he will do. One step further on that continuum. One step further towards seeking first the kingdom. And trusting that God will provide everything that we actually need. One step further in placing a guard over our lives and our home and our kids and our money. So that greed can't do to us what greed does to so many people in our culture. This whole story that Jesus tells doesn't make a whole lot of sense to the Smith Barneys of this world. To radically give away before you've invested anything else. (laughs) That's crazy. And yet that's how it works in the economy of God. That's how it works to seek his kingdom first. That's what it's like to place your treasure where God's heart is. It's level two wisdom. And Jesus' warning is a warning against greed because God knows that greed destroys us. There's a place to write this in your note, and I I encourage you to push back on me if I'm wrong. But I'll leave it as two things. Greed kills love. It kills relationship. But secondly, giving kills greed. It doesn't cure everything. I mean, you can give and still be a jerk. (laughs) You, you can give and, and still hold on to lots of different things. You can be spiteful. You can be prideful. There's all kinds of things that you can give and still do. But I'm not sure you can give and build a pattern of giving, of joyful and, and, and faithful giving, 
and remain greedy. I think giving and giving regularly kills greed. But push back on that. Talk about that as a family. Talk about that as a small church. I invite your feedback. Here's what it comes down to. We know this. Part of the reason why we did this series is that money and possessions and the anxiety and stress and depression that they've caused in our society is an enormous issue. And we believe that scripture has a whole lot of wisdom that we can bring to bear on our lives and our circumstances now. And if you're new with us and you're new to this faith and you've come and all you get from this whole series is some practical advice on how you can live better financially, then great. You are better off for having come and we're thrilled. But we also want to say there's so much more. There's such a bigger picture of what God wants from us further down that continuum of what it means to joyfully live as he does There's so much more if you're willing to lean in and explore. That's the beauty of these continuums. That's the the beauty of a group of people who are willing to look at this and say, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's figure out how to do this more like it is in the kingdom of God and encourage each other more in that. I've gone way over, so I'm going to wrap up. But let me pray for us as we continue this conversation. We're continuing it next week as well. God, we, we thank you that your word says that you love us so much that you're willing to give us hard words that you don't want to leave us where we are. We thank you that your word says that, that every command you give us is so that you might be glorified, but also so that we might experience your goodness. God, forgive us for the ways in which I think we, we fail to see that. We fail to believe that we fail to trust that. Forgive us for the ways in which we've explained away our own prosperity that we look to our education or our skills or, you know, our, our inheritances, these things that we've built our empires from. <laughs> and we've looked at that and we've said, God, I've earned it. God, once again, we ask you to give us hearts to truly see the world around us as yours and everything in it, including us. That is so counter to the message that we hear. And yet it's so central to your view of the world. Give us your eyes and your perspective in a way that we simply can't on our own. We ask it in the name of Jesus and for your glory and our good. Amen.